welcome to the Coach Steve Clark Show, where he will encourage, inspire, and equip coaches, players, and parents who will in turn motivate and help others to promote the great game of tennis, foster sportsmanship, and develop greater players and people. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, Steve Clark. Hello, everyone. This is Steve Clark, and thanks so much for tuning into the show. I'd like to thank Wayne Bryan for the intro and Mike and Bob Bryan for the music. And I'd like to also to you know, give them a special shout-out and thanks to all they do for tennis, and particularly for juniors and uh, just getting kids in the game, and also for the Bryan, Found, uh, Bryan Bro Foundation work. Um, joining me today is Liam Smith. What we're going to discuss, I am quite confident, will encourage, inform, and motivate players of all levels their parents, whether they're coaches or coaching parents or don't know anything about tennis, and the coaches of all levels, you know, from juniors to college to pro, and various uh, aspects of the game. And be sure to sa- uh, share this program and my website, CoachSteveClarkPhD.com, with your friends so they uh, can benefit from the discussion as well, because uh, this is going to be a rich discussion. Before I bring Liam on, here's a short recap of his background. He was born in the UK, and uh, he played around Europe as a junior, and uh, you know, which is a lot different for in the U.S. Uh, you know, we they have to travel a lot of times uh, through different countries and get a Euro pass, at least you know back then, and uh, play a lot. Whereas in the States, it's pretty spread out. And he played some futures as a young man, but his tennis career really changed when he moved to the U.S. to begin his coaching career with the late great teacher and founder of the PTR, and that's Dennis Vandermeer. Um, for those of you who don't know, the PTR is a professional tennis registry, and it, they developed a uh, teaching system or progression that's used worldwide. So it's pretty systematic, and it was just a, it's a phenomenal system. I'm a part of it as well, uh, as well as Liam. Um, he had the privilege to coach uh, at the Harry Hopman Academy, an uh, Australian legend. Also, one of my favorite players on the women's tour in the past was Justine Hennen, and uh, Liam uh, directed... Her academies in Belgium, U.S., and China. And he partnered with former ATP great Harold Solomon at an academy in South Florida. Uh, Then he headed over to Australia and was the head coach for the junior development, where he uh, led the development of several Grand Slam winners and even uh, world-ranked number one juniors. One of them, you know, uh, is Curios, and another one, you know, is Barty. Um, So we'll be talking about that, I'm sure. So uh, he's currently coaching... Gail Monfields, top 10 ATP player, and has coached uh, numerous other top 100 ATP players, so uh, quite the resume. Well, Liam, uh, welcome to the show, and I appreciate you coming on. How are you doing? Hey, Steve. Thanks uh, Thanks for the invite. It's, uh, it's an honor to be here. Uh, doing good, thanks. Good. I, I, uh, I've had several uh, I've had several. Uh, Aussie and UK guests, and uh, the qualifier here, folks, is uh, particularly from uh, the UK. They they tend to sound in uh, Australia. They always their, their accent lends to a sense of intelligence. It's it's funny when when people have an accent uh, like that. A lot of people think just just the, they sound more intelligent. So, uh, uh, <laughs> anyways, hey, uh, well, the, that's good, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it is. It goes a long way. The tennis community, I tell people, is small. And as often as I say, it's like a brotherhood or a sisterhood of sorts, and the friends and connections we make over the years is priceless. And this is an example. So Liam is, uh, you know, we have we have uh, uh, friends that kind of uh, go across the globe 
many of them are uh, former podcast guests of mine. And, you know, so I'm looking forward to having Liam share his experience, his knowledge with us, yet gain another friend in the tennis world. So, well, let's get started. I'm looking forward to this. And Liam, the first thing I want to start off, uh, you know, a lot of times we start off in the beginning, and that's where I want to start. Um, you know, being from England, originally your story is probably a bit different than juniors in the U.S. and, you know, I'm sure other countries as well. You know, I'd, I'd, be, uh, I'd be eager to find out a little bit about your personal journey as a tennis junior growing up in England. Yeah. Well, it was, it was back when the courts were, were very fast and uh, obviously the British weather is not great. So um, a, lot of, a lot of rain and uh, a lot of indoor tennis, a lot of fast courts. And uh, obviously some, at the time, was very popular, the indoor carpet, the fast indoor carpet courts <laughs> and uh, synthetic grass. And, yeah. You know, sometimes grass in the in the summertime. So it was all it was all very much fast court tennis, and uh, for me, it wasn't necessarily the best thing because I'm pretty short. So um, I was uh, always struggling a little bit um, with the with the speed of the courts, I guess. So I, I tried to spend as much time as I could uh, outdoors on on slower hard courts, or even get across and play a little bit more in Europe on clay, and and just yeah, try to have an opportunity to hit a few more balls uh, per point, basically. So that yeah. was. Uh, you know, it was, it was different. It, it you know it wasn't that long ago, but uh, the game, the game in terms of the balls and the courts definitely evolved to be uh, a lot slower now than it, it was then. So, yeah, if you didn't have a really pretty good big serve back then, it was always a, pretty much a disadvantage right from the from the get go. Well, I've I've been over there. I've had the privilege of uh, being, uh, you know, pl- uh, playing some of the courts uh, in and around Wimbledon and. Uh, I, I remember one time I was indoor, like you talk about that synthetic grass. It has the rubber pellets in it, I think. But uh, you know oh, those yeah. those carpet with the sand on them, those things are fast. So yeah, did lightning. Yeah, yeah most lightning guys. Fast. Yeah, most guys are going to be serving and volleying. I remember when I was in college, we had to uh, we we didn't have an indoor facility, and we had to do on wood floors. Talk about fast, you know, you it develops They're your hands. They're really fast. Yeah, I played on them once. Yeah, you can't. Yeah, you can't return hardly. <laughs> Did you play uh, other sports growing up? Did you play rugby or uh, cricket? Or... I played actually a little bit of cricket and a little bit of uh, football or soccer. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but uh, generally became more and more just tennis as I was, uh, you know, getting more uh, focused and trying to, you know, specialize in, in just playing tennis. Right? Yeah. Well, you know, for the benefit of uh, juniors around the world listening in, um, you know, I have them from all the way from Sri Lanka to, you know, uh, Indonesia, all over the place. Um, you know, what, what about maybe growing up, you know, now that you've, you know, you've traveled the world and you've, you've coached some of the best players in the world and, uh, maybe from your experience growing up and, uh, in England and being in the States and seeing juniors here and just being around the world, what, what maybe, uh, are some things you could share with juniors that, Hey, you know, um, this is something that, you know, other countries do and, hey, you should be appreciate this or maybe uh, you guys do this really well, so keep doing that. Or what are some things that you could maybe share, maybe some differences that uh, either they can learn from or kind of keep doing? I think um, it's always important to try to do maybe a little bit extra Um you, you often see that, you know, when we're kids, we tend to just do what all our friends and our mates do or, 
we, we, we do the sort of organised practices that our parents set up for us or our coaches do, but we don't necessarily always do stuff on our own. And I think um, it, it's, imp- it's important for, for, for juniors to, to go out there and just take a box of balls and work on your serve or go do a, a run by yourself or go do some stretching or core work, uh, you know, do, do the extra stuff. And and I think another thing is, and again, it depends on where you're where you're located. Some some places there's more opportunities than others. But I would say as well, it's it's, it's really important to compete a lot. And I think for me, when I was a junior, I, I didn't compete enough. It was almost like you always had that playing matches or tournaments was always a little bit of a sort of you're almost a little bit afraid. Or, oh, it's a big deal, and it became too it became too big a deal, and it's almost like. I think the more you compete, the more you get comfortable competing and the more you enjoy it. And um, so I think uh, competing amongst your, your, your peer group, your friends, or going to those local tournaments that are close by and just trying to play a lot and compete a lot and get really comfortable competing, I think, is a really important one for, for the young player. That's great advice, and I, I know exactly what you're saying. There's different parts of the country. Like, for example, let's say if you only get to play five tournaments in a summer and somebody else is playing 30 you know, one out of five loss, you know, can is a big percentage as opposed to one out of thirty. You know, and and exactly. and and the tournament is no big. Yeah, okay, so I lost, but hey, man, I, I'm going to take that. I'm going to work on it because I've got 29 other ones to figure it out. But when you only got exactly. a few, it becomes really precious. Yeah, and you, you you tend to put too much pressure on yourself because of that because it's like, oh, I lost the last two, and now I've got one more. Right. Because yeah, when it's just okay, I go next week and I play again. You, you, you have a slightly you develop a slightly different um, mindset with competing and and you actually become better at sort of laying it on the line and just giving it everything you've got and if you win great if you, if you lose okay I go back and I practice and and move on you know it's, it's not it doesn't become such a big dramatic uh, thing yeah I think that's uh, really important that's a great point and this may be similar but what advice? You know, as a as a player, as a junior is developing, let's say they have this ability, and we'll talk about, you know, what makes a champion later, but any advice to eager Beaver juniors or they're really pumped and, and they, they aspire to play professionally or something like that, um, what would you give them advice regarding, for example, what should they be focusing on in their game? I mean, you mentioned about doing the extra and competing, but what, what details maybe should be they focusing on their game Um and what do you th- like relatedly? What kind of uh, division of their court time or their fitness or working on their foot speed? What might uh, what maybe the things they should be working on, and maybe what um, how would you break it up percentage wise ish? You know, it doesn't have to be exact, obviously. But. I'm a big believer in uh, that you if, if that's what if, if that's the kind of goal that you have that you want to be a professional player that you really have to put some thought into it, and then with your coach, with your parents, with uh, with the people that you have to, to sort of help you and guide you. And you have to really sort of understand your your tennis, your game, and what kind of game you're going to need to, to achieve the goal that you have. And um, I, I guess the best, the best way to describe it is to start with game style. So, you know, obviously there's certain physiological aspects that are going to come in with, with regard to game style. Um, you know, if you're if you're a tall, very tall player, you're going to be looking to play more aggressive tennis. Um, maybe you're going to, you know, potentially play shorter points if you're a smaller player, um, or you're a really great returner. Maybe uh, you're going to be much more focused on uh, 
baseline or counter punching and things like that. So you have to identify that game style and then you have to set your priorities as to how much time you spend working on your game in line with that. You know, like if you if you're gonna be a if you're a tall kid and you're gonna have a big serve and you never practice your serve <laughs> and you're Oops. always and you're always working on running around the back the defense defending well, you're not really using your time as wisely as you should. You should probably spend a lot more time working on your serve and your first shot and um, maybe working on your transition forwards and finishing points at the net and things like that. So I think, uh, you know, by the same measure, if you're, a, if you're a small player that likes to be really physical and play long points and, you know, you don't need to be practicing uh, one-two punch as much, you know, it's sort of, I think that's, a, that's something that I see a lot of young players, they, they kind of go wrong with. Um, they um, they don't really practice according to what makes sense for them, and right. uh, and I think that's the biggest one. Right, I, and I I could I'll I'll chime in there even you know for examples you know I've had players that are like six two and I come and I start with them and they're on the base like you said you know four or five feet behind the baseline grinding away and they got a good serve, you know you teach them hey let's let's get you in the net a little bit more learn how to volley, um, you know have more of an all court game and all of a sudden you know it's a different ball game for them. Or you know, some people say, "Hey, I, I just want to be. I'm, I'm, I'm not comfortable going to net. I, um, I like running around the baseline, but they're not that quick. It's like, well, uh, if you're, if you're not, if you're going to be a defensive baseliner, you got to be fast like Michael Chang, and you got to not miss like him. You know, other than that, you yeah, got to, exactly. you got to come up with another game, and that's called all court, or find a way to throw someone's rhythm off, or change it up on them, or something like that." No, I think that's a, it's a big one, and and a lot of a lot of young juniors they just don't don't do a good job with that. And I think the other other things are, you know, I'm not I'm not a believer in really focusing or thinking too much about say a weakness. Mm-hmm. I always think about you know a player's game as well. What are your strengths? Make sure you're practicing them a lot because those are what's going to win you the most points. But then you've always got to be willing to practice the things that you're not so good at. And there's you know some kids. They don't want to practice the stuff that they're not good at. It's not fun, or they don't want to do some of the the hard yards, kind of more boring drills because it's like, oh, but that's not really fun. But it's sort of like uh, sometimes you've got to allocate time in your in your practice to do those kind of less fun things that are sort of necessary, and you just got to balance it. Um, some kids, uh, you know, they they need to to spend more time on on improving certain areas and than others so yeah you just got to have that healthy balance i think and, and not shy away from the stuff that you're not good at as well what would you uh maybe your comment on this a lot of times what i tell people is uh personally i i, I like to develop an all-court player and i want them to have if they do have a weakness it's hard for the other person to pick on it in other words your weakness shouldn't allow your opponent to have a good offense you know, if you're if you're being pushed to the corner, you want to be able to have a good slice or what I call it, get out of jail free card that doesn't allow your opponent to come up on you or something like that. And if you don't have that slice, you got to work on it. Or if you don't have that ability to hit a dry, you know, driving shot on the run, you got to work on it. Um, but this balance of weakness and strength, um, you know, uh, Angela Duckworth, uh, she did a lot of her research on what's called deliberate practice. And one of the things she talks about, if you look at uh, Hussein Bolt, you know, he's he's a tall guy. He's, one, he's the fastest guy in the world at the time. And he spent most of his time training out of the blocks because he has natural speed. But because he's so tall, he didn't get out of the blocks fast. So he spent a, probably right. the majority of his time working on his weakness. 
uh, the the and you know, for example, uh, master mathematicians, uh, chess players, musicians. It's the like you said, it it can be boring, but it's the mundane. It's going over these things over and over, and they're willing to do it because they know if they don't have these weaknesses, that's what makes greatness. And uh, you know, there's nothing somebody can attack. So you said there's a balance, um, but would you say unless somebody just has an overriding weapon? that they should strive to not have a glaring weakness. Yeah, absolutely, because I think, you know, if if you fast forward to the to the professional game, if you if you have any part of your game that is uh, glaringly obvious that somebody can expose, then you become too you you become too easy for people to play. You become too predictable in in that regard. And the most difficult players to prepare for from a tactical perspective, are the ones that are pretty good at everything because you, yeah, you, you don't have any glaringly obvious, well, if I go here or if I get the ball there, I'm going to be in a good in good shape. And when you look at most of the top guys and, and the top women, that there isn't too much, uh, there isn't really any necessary weaknesses. Everything's pretty good and then there's a strength. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's very important to... Uh, to be able to have that ability to be able to do a lot of things well. Would this be accurate? And I would think maybe, you know, the juniors as you're developing it and then college players I know and then, you know, some on the pro tour and you've dealt with that a lot. You know, I tell people who are aspiring, I say, look, good players have, a, you know, a few good shots, you know, and, and, and they're, they're pretty good athletes, etc. Really good players um, not only have that base, but they've got maybe a weapon or so that they can kind of use. A great player... Uh, has a huge weapon, knows how to orient uh, his or her game around it. Like if you got a forehand, you're going to run around and hit 75% forehands like Fed and Nadal and, and Djokovic and these guys. Um, and you don't have a you know glaring weakness. You know you know how to compensate. You know how to disguise it. You know people can't get there. And then just you know phenomenal players off the top. They just basically have huge weapons and no weaknesses. Would, that, would, the, would those be safe categories that as you're talking to juniors, say, look, you know, that could help motivate them to kind of climb that ladder? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm a firm believer as well that when you're a young player, you have to learn to do everything. So even if you're going to be, even if you're a smaller player and you're going to play more of a game style like uh, David Ferrer or Diego Schwartzman or... Or, or something like that, you still should learn how to hit slice backhands, how to serve and volley. How to, you should learn how to do everything and be competent to be able to do everything. Um, and then you just, it's just about dividing up your, your time so that you, um, you, you make sure that you're spending the larger proportion of your time focusing on what makes sense for you and your game. And it's the same thing applies if you're, you know, if you're like a, a young John Isner or Riley Opelka and you're very, very tall, you're going to have that serving attacking short point kind of game style it doesn't mean that when you're a junior that you still don't learn how to run deep and defend with a slice or how to you know play defense and things but again it's just all about the balance the proportion of time the the majority of your time needs to be focused on what's going to actually make you successful but you have to better do everything and i think that's something that you know i've had lots of players say to me before oh you know it's not really my game to to defend like that. And I said, okay, but what is that one point where you're able to use that skill that you've spent a bit of time on to defend in that corner 
it's not your game style, it's not your typical thing, but you get stuck in that situation at seven all in a tie break in a big match. And because you actually are a bit better at it, because you practiced it, you win that match. And then they looked at me and they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, that's that, that's true. That's a good point. Okay, maybe I'm only going to do it 2% of the time I'm on the court, but I might as well do that really well for those couple of times I have to do it. And I, I think that's what people forget. Well, not only that, and, and for those juniors, you know, maybe the higher level players advancing, um, the facts bear that out because uh, the percentage that Liam just gave is there's only 1% difference between uh, – between in matches uh, when the opponents are extremely close, um, you know, Nadal I think wins fifty-two percent of his points uh, from the baseline, and that's not a whole. You know, people think, oh, I'm losing points. Well, he only, you know, he's the greatest baseliner on the planet, and he only uh, loses. You know, he's only two percent over, f- you know, five hundred, and you know, the next guy down is fifty-one percent. And when you when you calculate yeah. out the points, I actually did this in a college match one time. I was just curious. I you know I'd been talking with Craig O'Shaughnessy, and I, I so I sat there and I I counted the points. Sure enough, we lost in a lost a match. I think or my, I can't remember if we won, but I think we lost in a tiebreaker. And there was literally one percent difference in all the points. So that one yeah, percent of that I've ability. Had, yeah, go ahead. I've had situations where players and I've coached have have won fifty two, fifty three percent of the points, and they've lost the match. Right. And I've had other times when one of my players won 49% of the points played in total, but won the match. So it's, uh, yeah, it's, um, that's the beauty of tennis, right? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, the beauty and the insanity. Get, they think they have to win every point. Right. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's just that longevity. It's just uh, outlasting. Hey, uh, now, this may be, um, I could say it's sensitive or not, but you know you've lived in the U.S., you've been around the world, you've seen juniors excelling at other places, you've been responsible for juniors excelling uh, in other areas. What do you think is um, missing in uh, U.S. junior tennis, if anything? Maybe your opinion is, hey, it's awesome. Uh, but um, you know, with your experience at, uh, around the globe, what do you think uh, maybe could be uh, better for U.S. tennis? Um, and maybe, uh, you know, another part of that is, you know, maybe there's other countries you see the same thing. What What's missing that you see maybe in countries that really have it nailed down? Uh, I think, uh, you know, every country is a little bit different because obviously the, the, the land size, the population, the, the number of people that play tennis, the, uh, the history, the culture of, of the sport in the country. So you've got a lot of variables, but... Uh, the one thing that I think is is always important, obviously, for for junior development in terms of becoming developing champions or you know top level professional players, it, I think somebody has to be responsible. Um, obviously, the first the first person that's responsible is the player themselves to really be sort of accountable and take responsibility for their tennis. But then I believe that there has to be a, a parent, a coach, a, a physical trainer, a mentor. A, someone that, that has a certain level or of, of responsibility and accountability to guide that person. And, and I think too often I, I see it a lot, um, especially in the U.S., because we have such a – I think we, we have a lot of opportunity for tennis in the U.S. That there's a lot of academies. There's a lot of great clubs. We've got the college tennis system. Um, the U.S. is a country that has, I think, the most professional tennis tournaments of any other country – um, in the world, uh, in, in terms of sort of, we've got grand slams, we've got two fifties, five hundreds, one thousands. 
right. um, women's premieres. We've got we've got a, you know a lot of men's and women's challenger tournaments. Uh, we've got a lot of opportunity, and I think what happens is I see too often that juniors don't follow a consistent path. They they jump around. They are oh, this coach over here, this academy over there. Oh, I, I didn't do so well the last six months. I'm going to go over here, and and I think that they get lost a little bit. They they don't get really they don't stay on a on a consistent development plan. And, and, and I think um, also from, from, a, from a tennis federation perspective, what you always want to see is you want to see that your, your junior players are in a longer term, more consistent situation. Now, whether that means as a federation, you have to take that on yourself and do it yourself, or whether it means you have to provide funding to private sector coaches. Um, but whatever, whatever way you choose to do it, what you must do is you must have consistency and, and, and some sense of accountability to, to that process. And I think I just, I just see too much uh, in and out, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm going, I'm training with the, the national, I mean, the national, I'm back with my private coach for two weeks and I'm going to go practice with this guy. That's a friend of my uncle's cousin who was a former college player or professional player for a week. And, and everything just gets a bit too sort of wishy washy. I, I always say to myself, um, you've got to be 100% in it and invested in that process to, to get the result that you want. And, you know, if you if you do things by half measures, you're never really going to get the, the result. And I, I just see a lot, a lot of half measures uh, in general um, in, in this country. And, and some of that also you can say to the players too, that the players or the parents, they're not fully engaged in it. They're, they're sort of, they're half in, they're half out. And, and I think it's also... A challenge with the college system because there's a lot of young players that um, are not sure if they should turn pro, if they should go to college, what's the best option. And again, they're they're half in, they're half out. They they, they want to be pro, but they don't. They want to hedge their bets. And I think a lot of other countries they don't they don't have that same complication. They're, there's maybe less options. There's there's less academies or there's less. Uh, you know, the college option isn't always considered the same for Europeans or Australians or uh, kids in, in other countries. They, if they want to be a professional player, they, they, they go for that. So, yeah, I think uh, it, it, it's a very complicated, it's never, ne- not an exact answer, but right. uh, for me, it's, you've, got to, you've got to be fully invested in it. No, that's that's really helpful, and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make a point, and I think you'll uh, agree. Um, but it's it's something I see. Um, what people do is I I call it junioritis. It's like, uh, you know, a kid or the parents they'll say, hey, you know, this kid is really successful over here, you know, and I'll just speak, maybe speak from the kid's perspective. They see this other kid who you know, uh, is really good and doing well. And they go, man, you know, how come I'm not there? I put, I work harder. I do this. Well, what they don't understand is that kid is six foot four in the fourteens, And, you know, three years from now, because you have a well-developed game and you grow, you're going to surpass that person probably. And you don't know, everybody has a different path or a parent might say, Man, you know your your son or your daughter's really good. That, you know they use that coach, so maybe that's the secret. And they bounce around because they I don't think they understand that. Look, everybody has a different path and a growth spurt and emotional maturity at different ages. And sometimes, just like you said, weather the storm, kind of go a little bit. I mean, there's nothing wrong with, you know, asking somebody, hey, can you help me with my serve or do this? 
but it's it's that consistency and at least if you know where you're going if you're if you're set at an all-court game at age 10 and you know that this kid has the ability or this girl has the ability to do this and teaching a girl slice and and working on these things early on and you know in the long run it's going to pay off and you have a few losses on the way or that maybe they're not physically mature okay so what they're gonna get there probably and just to yeah. hold in for the long run yeah, everyone develops at different rates, and, and some kids are yeah, faster out of the blocks and, and have better rankings in juniors and whatnot. But for me, it's yeah, it's about understanding the process, and, and there's just way too much uh, reactivity. You know, you, you take a loss, a parent or a coach, or somebody panics, and they, they change too much. There's too much um, reactive thinking rather than, um, than proactive and, 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 and understanding that it's a process. And, uh, and I think, yeah... It's it's tough for, for for federations for the USTA to to get it right because it's a very large country with a lot of players and a lot of different opinions and things. Mm-hmm. But my, my criticism or not criticism, but my uh, my experience has always been you've got to be fully in it or fully out of it. You can't be half half. Right. And um, you know you you can you can have a system where you fund you fund players in in, in private in, in private coach uh, private sector situations to help them and you monitor you know what they're doing and it's kind of an approved uh, process or you you bring them into a national center and you and you do it yourself but i think when you try to do both things at the same time that's when it doesn't work ah okay what's the value of dubs for for you in, in the juniors uh, in juniors, I think doubles is massively important. Um, I, I love it, and, and I, I'm a big fan of the the ITF decision some years ago when they included uh, 25% of the rankings points earned from doubles into what they call a combined uh, junior world ranking because it it forced all the the kids to play more doubles because there there was a points ranking um, value on it now, and. Um, yeah, it's great. I mean, you develop all court skills. You're out there, but you're hitting returns. You're, hitting, you're having to make first serves under pressure. You're understanding. You're learning the doubles game, and I think it's really, really important. And uh, I'm a big fan of, of, of making the juniors play um, a lot of doubles. Yeah, I, I agree 100. percent And to me, it's uh, you know the, not only the social aspect, but I tell kids, even as or players, even adults and college players, I say, look. In singles, you need to be a good doubles player to yourself. You know, you need to be, you know, when you're talking to yourself, you know, your doubles partner's not going to, or they shouldn't say, hey, you're a doofus for missing that shot. They're going to say, hey, man, that's all right. Ne- next point, you know. Well, do that to yourself in singles, right? So in playing doubles, you actually, uh, it takes pressure off of you because, you know, that that's one thing about tennis compared to other sports. I tell people, hey, man, if you're playing basketball and you're stinking it up, what happens? The coach sits your butt on the bench. In tennis, you got to figure it out. Well, in doubles, I don't know how many times, you know, I had my partner bail me out or I bailed him out. And then, at, you know, and if we're both playing crummy, oh, well. But, you know, sometimes you have somebody bail you out. And that, that takes pressure off you. You get to work on your returns, like you said, and all your shots. So I, it's a... Uh, I think it's a phenomenal. No, I think it's great. Yeah, I've even seen it. The I've even seen it at the professional level with some players I've worked with, where they've had really positive, strong doubles results, and it's actually improved their confidence and their self-esteem to then yeah. go and make similar results in singles. Yeah. So, yeah, just and and for young players too, some kids like we talked about earlier, some kids compete better than others, and just getting comfortable competing 
and um, you know coming up with the goods under pressure and things. Maybe you do it. Maybe you're doing it on the doubles court. You're more comfortable with your partner. You're more relaxed. It's more kind of a fun atmosphere for you. And and you you learn those skills and you develop those skills that way. And then later on, it it transfers across into your singles. So yeah, it, it, there's just the numerous benefits. You know, right now they're uh, in college. They do this, and they're kind of experimenting with it on some of the exhibition stuff on the tour. But uh, what about what do you think about um, you know no ad scoring and uh, these quick four events? And um, my personal favorite, actually, I'd like to see happen on the tour and everywhere in the world is get rid of the let serve, just play everything out. But what do you what do you think about those things? Yeah, I'm not a fan, to be honest. I'm, I'm a bit. I, I believe that we have to make some improvements in the in the product of tennis as a whole in order to to attract the fan base uh, or a bigger, wider, younger fan base. But uh, I'm still a bit of a traditionalist. I still think the Grand Slams need to be best of five sets because I don't think it's it, it's right uh, historically that you could show up and win a Grand Slam by playing two sets and no ad scoring. It's it's, it's almost too easy. Right. It, it, it's such a big, prestigious prize. You, you've got to have the mental, the physical, the, the, the whole package to, to be able to do that. So I, I'm not a fan of the no ad in, in singles. I feel like uh, I, I think you'd see it would level the game a lot more. You, you would see some of the top guys would lose a little bit more often and, and the no let. Um, my understanding of it is, is many years ago, I was watching a, a college match at uh, University of Florida, the, the Gators, and um, the kid serves an ace and the, and, the other, and the other kid goes left. And it happened like, I don't know, 20 times. And uh, I guess a few years later, they decided to change the rule because of, of that was, was an issue. And obviously in professional tennis, we don't have that. And I just think... Um, it's really bad luck if it's uh, if it's a break point and you hit you hit the net cord and the ball pops up and the, the person has an easy shot and you're broken. I think it takes some of the skill the skill out of the game from a mental perspective. It, it can allow for a little bit more luck and a little bit less of that sort of mentality that you see from somebody like Rafa. It would get taken away by those kind of changes. Right. So, yeah, I mean, the fast four is great for exhibitions, um, and. Um, yeah, I, I just think uh, best of best of three sets for me is, is is the way to go with a tie break in each set, and then the slams with the tie breaks in the fifth set. I think it's uh, it's good. Well, I, I just I, I love the I love the five set battle, you know, and I, and I just feel like yeah, in the future, I mean, you look back at at, at legends like Roger Rafa and, and Novak, and and even guys like Murray and Wawrinka and let's say we fast forward five, 10 years and people are winning slams and they, they, they've, they've won in straight sets, two sets every, every round. It's just not the same. No, it's, I, I agree 100%. It, it takes away from, I mean, tennis, uh, the reality is, uh, you know, if a non-tennis player is listening to this, it's, uh, you know, there's actually been studies on to show that as tennis players are some of the most elite athletes, if not uh, in the world. And it's in terms of the, you know, you're dealing with, uh, agility, speed, power, uh, you, know, uh, you know, all the different facets, uh, body weight, uh, you know, uh, lean mat muscle mass and strength per pound. I mean, all these different things. Um, and that really puts the test when you have a five setter. And uh, but I I guess for me, I, yeah, I'm with you, even though I played it and I've coached it. I don't like, you know, no ad scoring. It's great to kind of do for mental stuff, but you're right. Anytime you, Elliot Telcher, when they first brought up this in uh, 
uh, college about shortening the format. Um, he was just completely against it, and I think a lot of guys were because um, anytime you shorten the format, you, you increase the odds there can be an upset. You know, if I play one set against Roger and I hit a big serve and I clip the line and it slides away, hey, I could beat him if I got one point. You know, if it's yeah. more than that, I'm in trouble. So, <laughs> you know. It, no, and I'm, I'm not a fan. In, in uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I believe in college tennis now they play two sets and then a super tie break. It yeah it depends yeah right it depends on the place in the match but yes if the match is concluded they play what's called a clinch tiebreak but if it's not you play third set but yeah it's it's just too short okay all right that's yeah. good that's good because I, I believe it should be a full three sets especially if you have players that are considering to turn professional at some point or at the conclusion of their college career it's, uh, I think it's important because you don't want to get used to to playing too short of a format either because you're your physicality, your intensity, your concentration, and things are affected. Well, and this is the big thing, and, and again, I mean, I'm glad we're talking about this because there's a lot of college coaches, particularly at the Power Five conferences, that are going to say, "Look, you know, we need to make this a, a product that people can watch in a short period of time." But one of my biggest beefs in college tennis, and I did it for 30 years, um, I don't know. There's what's called clinching. Like if a match is decided, if the first team to four, and if they get to four, and there's still two or three, two matches on or another match on, they'll stop the mat, the 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 competition. And to me, it's like you never gave that guy a chance or that gal a chance to figure out how to come back and win, or you never gave that person a chance to figure out how to hold on to win. And then a lot of their argument is, well, they should have figured that earlier, done it sooner. No, but there's no time clock on tennis. It's all a battle, and you got to figure out a way to do it. And uh, you know, and they'll, they're, no, I, totally. I guess, I mean, yeah. Look how many times you see you see players, uh, you know, Roger, two sets to love down and come back and win in five. Or, right. You know, yeah, it's easy to say you should have done it sooner, but it's, <laughs> like you said, there's no time clock in tennis. Right. You, you have the ability to turn it around at any moment, any time. And, and yeah, I think if you're focusing on development and, and you're trying to help people to be better players, then you, you want them to finish those matches. Right. And, then, and if they lose... They lose, but at least give them that chance. And yeah, right. I, I agree with that. I, I think why stop? I mean, maybe maybe they were finding kids with stuff to tank if the team had already lost or something. I don't know. That's part of it. But then we have, to me, we have a we have a character issue. I mean, when would you ever tank? I've never tanked in my life. Why why would you do that? Yeah, it's. Uh, I can tell you that the tanking seems to be more of a fashionable thing in the last ten years than it ever was before. <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, I think uh, more young kids do it now than uh, than I've ever seen before, and I, I'm, yeah. I don't like it. I'm not a, I'm not a fan. If, if I see someone doing that, I, I tend to <laughs> I tend to part ways. <laughs> yeah, <you're there. laughs> I was going to say you tend to go ballistic or part ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, uh, I have a I have a uh, a saying that I have that I, I've uh, put on some posters and things for my players. And it's on my blog, on my uh, website. I dis- I discuss it, but it, I, it it goes like this: Rare greatness comes at a steep price. Mediocrity is abundant and cheap. And I kind of go through all the different terms there and what that means. And the the thing I want to ask you about, and this is, I think it kind of dovetails into what you've been talking about. I have a friend of mine who was in uh, when when I was getting my uh, doctorate. He was he was in my cohort. And he recently heard about a, a study that showed this is among young players, I mean young people, young people in general, cross-population, that only about 20% of them, particularly younger people, have a passion. 20% have a passion. And I was thinking about it, I go, man, that's sad. 
And if you think about it, the majority of people don't have a passion about anything. And I was thinking about yeah, that. Go, wow, true. it's one thing about tennis or about being involved, you know, in sports or music or whatever it is. It doesn't matter what it is. But what's your perception as you travel around the world and and uh, do you think that holds true? I mean, you, you, you probably deal with more elite people who have a passion for the game or something like that. But what's your perception about that possibly around the world? Because in the U.S., apparently, that's that's the case. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess like, it's, it's kind of sad to hear that, but it, it sort of makes sense in a way because I think uh, the world we live in now is, is, is constantly changed and um, everything has become sort of more instant gratification, the the, the understanding of process or to really work at something for a long time to achieve something is kind of somewhat lost. Um, and, and yeah, I, I would imagine that there's a lot of young people that they, they do, they bounce around, they have different interests, they do this for a bit, they do that for a bit, this thing becomes fashionable. And, and yeah, there probably is a lot less sort of real passion um, in terms of uh, you know, wanting to do something or achieve something. Than, than there was before that I, I could uh, yeah I mean now you say those stats uh, it, it, it you kind of see it yeah but uh, I've, I've been I've been fortunate for the most part I've worked with with people that really love tennis and um, are passionate about it and, and enjoy sports in general and um, and, and yeah it, it, it does make it more fun and, and for me it's uh, tennis coaching it, it's a passion as well and uh, so it's like that famous quote they say um, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you a question that I think uh, is going to, um, I, I found over my career, I've even thought back at things like this. And as coaches and players, we're all influenced uh, or directly mentored by other coaches or, you know, mentors in our life. And, you know, I coached, you know, collegiately for 30 years probably I'd say 90% because of my college coach, you know, um, and just the experiences I had and the camaraderie and the, you know, fighting in the trenches and just, you know, all that. So I'd like Absolutely. to ask you, what is, uh, if you could maybe mention who, cause you've, you know, you've been mentored or been alongside with, you know, like the likes of Dennis Vandermeer, um, Jim Verdick, uh, the, uh, Hopman Academy, Justine Hennen, uh, you know, in Australia with Craig Tiley and I'm sure other people. So, you know, maybe share with us things you've learned from people or who has, you know, taught you things that you bring to the table now, things you hold dear. What would be some of those things? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I guess for me at, at the beginning it was uh, it was Dennis Vandermeer who, who taught me a lot and I, I started to really understand a lot and, and realize that this is what I wanted to do. Um and then there was a person that uh, I worked with. Um, his name was Tommy Thompson, and uh, he was the um, the right hand man of Harry Hopman, actually uh, at the Harry Hopman Academy when Harry was still alive. And then moved the uh, moved the academy over to Saddlebrook Resort um, when Harry passed away. And um, yeah, spending time with him, he, he taught me a lot. He taught me he taught me a lot about how to coach at the elite level, at the at the professional level, at the the best players in the world level, and how what to expect from juniors, um, what the, the 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 standards needed to be, what elite really was, and how to train players properly. So, um, what would Harry the Hoffman was very famous for that? But, right. What uh, would that be, for example, if I could back up? What did you learn from Dennis Vandermeer? Like maybe give me one or two things so people can go, you know. 
they can because uh, un- they don't have the people listening generally aren't going to have that have that have had that opportunity to learn from people like this. What did you learn from him? Yeah, I think I think Dennis. It was uh, his, his organization, um, how organized he was, how structured everything was. I, I learned so much in, in in that area. I learned a lot about how to run programs, um, how to manage a facility and attract people nationally and internationally to that facility. Um, he had an academy there as well, so I started to learn a lot about how academies work because where I came from in, in UK, we didn't really have per se like tennis academies as much. There was some, of course, but not like in the US where there's a lot and, 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 and you know, in Spain or somewhere where they have a lot of success. So I learned a lot about what an academy is and, and how it operates and what's important. And um, also with Dennis, I learned a lot about how to, you know, the, the customer service aspect, how to look after your clients, how to treat your players, how to respect everybody. And, um, yeah, he was just uh, an amazing an amazing character um, and, a, and an amazing uh, presence on the court and mm-hmm. the energy and intensity. I think I learned a lot from him about, as a coach, being a professional, being on the court, how you present yourself and the energy and intensity that you bring. And Dennis was also a genius uh, with the sort of teaching methods and the how to fix things you know someone was yes. doing a certain thing wrong technically with their right. serve and he'd have 15 different ways to use 15 different sort of tools or props if you like to to solve that that situation and i i just learned a lot about coaching and how to problem solve and how to correct things how to motivate people to improve things and yeah it was a, it was a magical time for me uh with, with dennis then and then you mentioned uh, uh, Thompson. Uh, you mentioned the expectations and the standards. Um, wh- what might be some examples there? Because I think some people would be surprised, like, you know, uh, you know, it crosses over from other areas of life, I'm sure. So what would be some of the... Yeah, I think uh, it, it was, you know, Harry Hopman was very famous for um, very high standards in training, very high intensity, um, really uh, being very physical, um, on the court, and uh, he obviously taught Tommy and instilled a lot of that into Tommy. And Tommy, Tommy taught me that. He taught me what it was to go out on the court with one or two or three players and and work them out to to the highest level uh, in terms of intensity, the quality, the the types of drills and exercises and the structure that was needed. Um, and then he also taught me a lot about the subtleties of of coaching at a more elite level, how to get the best out of certain types of personalities of players, how to adapt your personality to other players' personalities because honestly, literally every player you coach is going to have slightly different different personal qualities and and you've got to be able to find a way to relate to them to to get your your message across. And um, he taught me a lot about um, how to to do that and how to... um, be a leader yourself and if you if you want a young player to do something a certain way well make sure you can do it and 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 show them um and motivate them in that way so yeah it was uh you know i'd probably need a few hours to tell you everything right. that he taught me but uh i think he was at the time considered one of the best coaches or in his prime one of the best coaches in the world and and i certainly learned uh, the most uh, from him that's that's awesome and 
and I really appreciate your time. And I want to maybe tap in maybe a couple more people, um, and we still got a few things to go through. But okay, so Justine Hennen. So she's one of my favorite, you know, female players. Uh, Steffi Graf. I mean, there's you know a lot of these gals, but uh, Justine, as a player, and then you know, I think you coached her for a stint, didn't you? I was helped. I helped. Okay. Carlos Rodriguez was her coach, okay. and then I was. Uh, I worked for her academies, and I helped uh, in the process when, whenever they needed me to do something, I was there. So. Right. So, so as a you know coach at, in, in part, and then as a you know as a peer, as a director, as, as somebody who comes alongside to help her run her academies, what did you learn from her as a player slash uh, coach uh, or director? Yeah, I mean, she, she was an amazing player, obviously. Um, incredible all-court skills, um, incredible work ethic and professionalism and attention to detail. And I learned a lot from Carlos and her about the, the attention to detail, how to plan, how to do things to the absolute highest um, level of professionalism to, to, to maximize what you have. And, and I think that they, they, they as a team were fantastic at that. And I think that's why she was so successful in her career and, you know, goes down probably as one of the legends um, of, of the women's game. So um, that was a really big one. And, and just her work ethic and her drive, even having achieved as much as she did, she was always willing to spend the hours in the gym, go to the running track, do the absolutely brutal physical training, do the the most laborious drills on the court but there was a purpose to everything that she did and I think that was uh, that was something really special and and Carlos was, a, was a, an amazing coach as well I, I learned quite a lot from him and just uh, the way he went about uh, doing things with her was, was really uh, quite something special as well the next person I'd like to ask about is Gail Monfils himself you know as and I think people who were attuned to tennis, I was just talking to a, uh, to a young uh, lady, that uh, young girl that I coach, and she knew exactly what I was talking about. Um, I said, look, you know, Liam's probably directly responsible or in a major part of we all know, we can sense that uh, Gail is uh, he's more serious, he's more disciplined, he's more focused on what he's doing out there. Um, he's a freak athlete and uh, just has a lot of, you know, the skill sets off the chart. And people are always wondering, hey, you know, how come he's not up there? And, you know, is it the French thing? And da 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 da. But, you know, he is, he's really, I, I think, turning. It's, it's apparent from us just watching, you know, that he's, he's clearly had something, uh, you know, change. And I'd be curious, uh, this would be a learning experience for people watching. Maybe when you talk about you having to adapt to different personalities and uh, different players, maybe what uh, you know we can learn from players too. Uh, but so what in your dealings with him has changed, and maybe even something that you've learned from that relationship? Yeah, I mean he's yeah he's been really good. He's been really really great actually um, the last couple of years now, um, and. I think, you know, first of all, I have to give a lot of credit to, to him as, as a player. He's very motivated. He, he's got, he's set big goals that he wants to achieve. And um, he's really been willing to to take on board what, what it's going to take to, to try to achieve those goals. And he's really committed. And, you know, as a coach, you can only do as much as, as the commitment and the motivation of the player. So, so a lot of credit goes to him on that one. Um, and then also, he's obviously had a lot of years on the tour, so he's 
got a lot of experience. He's learned from the good things, the bad things. He's had a lot of good coaches in his career as well. Um, I'm not the only one. There's been a lot of good people that have helped him. So I think he's learned a lot and he's matured a lot. And he's really able to use all those things a lot more now. And then for me, I think one of my things is, is I always believe that when, when you talk about goals and you, you set certain goals, then what you're willing to do, your training, your schedule, your day-to-day sort of standards, your attitude, professionalism, they, they have to be in line. They have to make sense uh, to, to being able to achieve that goal. And if they don't, well, then the goal is actually not going to be attainable because unrealistic because you're not doing what's going to be required to achieve the goal. So um, I'm very big on that, and I'm very big on, on holding that accountability to that. So, um, you know, I always try to, you know, hold him accountable if I think he, he needs to do something better um, or, or something more or something less sometimes. Um, I'm going to tell him, and I think he knows that. Um, I'm, I'm always going to be pretty honest and straight with him, and... Um, hold him accountable to his his goal, which is uh, something that he he's he's chosen. And I think it just it's uh, you know we we have a lot of respect for each other. We like each other a lot, and um, we work well together. He knows that uh, I won't let him down, and I feel like he's always going to do his best. And uh, we take it like a team approach. You know, we we're a team of people trying to achieve a goal, and uh, we we expect the maximum from each other all the time. And I think that's um, that helps uh, to create that consistency. Yeah, and this goes, uh, that's exactly what I was just going to mention. It goes back to this consistency where you know, uh, you know he has total buy-in. He knows you have 100% confidence and support, and you'll do anything for him. And you guys both do that day in and day out, regardless of the ups and downs, and that's the, the consistency. So it doesn't matter how bad it gets. Uh, it's, hey, you know, this is, the, this is where we're going. It'll get there. It'll work. Trust the process, et cetera. And there's that trust factor. No, absolutely. Uh, and that's, that's the biggest thing. Um, you look at the top guys, it, it's incredible how consistent they are. And um, that enables you to you know, just be able to win that many matches a year. You win a certain number of titles, and that helps you in those bigger tournaments and to win those bigger titles because you're drawing on that. You're, you're, you're low-level is still very high because you're just consistently always bringing that high quality. So that, that's a big one. And then I think for me, one of, one of the, the most great things I learned with Gail is his creativity on the court, his ability to sense and understand what's happening on the court and then change something up or um, use a different kind of shot, whether it be a drop shot or an angle or comes up with something that, you've never seen before but it's uh it's a creativity that that has often a lot more purpose to it than people realize and mm-hmm. um you know the ability to unlock the neutral situation in a point by changing something up in a certain way or changing a direction at a time where you think well, what's he gone down the line there for and then later on it all makes sense and, uh, and i think that's something that um that's very special and you know i'm a big believer that there's a lot of weapons that players have that are not always the, the most visible. There's more subtle things, you know, they tactical awareness or mindset or focus or intensity or right. the understanding and awareness on the court. And, right. and he definitely has quite a lot of those. And he's improving them even more because we're, we're, we're spending time uh, talking about those things and 
um, yeah, I think that's that's a big one for me. It's just his, his creativity and his awareness of actually what's happening on the court is really quite something special. And, you know, saying that, yes, uh, he's a player that a lot of people say, oh, he should have won Grand Slams and he's so talented. And, and I agree, he's, he has he has the ability and, and we believe it and we're trying to do it um, and trying to help him to, to achieve to achieve that. But at the same time, he's playing in an era of three absolute <laughs> yes, legends. Right. Oh, yeah. Plus two other guys with Murray and Wawrinka that um, also are, are multiple Grand Slam champions. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's previous eras, we would be talking about Murray and Wawrinka as, as, as legends as well. It's just... Right. The, the benchmark of legend seems to have just gone to a whole new level. <laughs> right, right. So that, that's also that's also something that I think people forget sometimes, just how good Roger and Rafa and Novak are and have yeah. been over this period. They, they've made it very difficult. And Murray and Stan also winning three each, uh, also incredibly good at, at the different times that they were able to win those titles. And so it's quite a difficult landscape out there. So. Yeah. Well, I think a couple of things you said is one is uh, he's, um, you know, perception. And this is any player sometimes like, you know, we call it a bailout shot or just, you know, something just, OK, I want to get out of this point. And what you're saying is he's he has these intangibles and he's so creative that those aren't bailout shots. They're just he, he just has this talent oozing out and he knows how to use it and kind of, you know, uh, kind of change things up on people. And then. Uh, you know, because uh, he's one of the most favorite. I mean, I I would if people had to put a top ten, you know, uh, favorite person to watch on tour, he's he's in there. You know, so he's obviously exciting yeah. to watch. I mean, his athleticism is crazy. So um, yeah, I'm I'm pulling for him, and I'm, uh, I'm it's great to see that he's made you know changes. And like you said, he's he's he has buy-in, 100 uh, percent, you know, focused, and that's 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 great to hear. Yeah, and and, and I think the other thing to add is that he. Uh, he loves the sport of tennis. He's a fan of tennis. He, he watches other people play. He, 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 he just a, he loves sports in general, and he has, he's a passion. So um, yeah, he, he enjoys he enjoys compete, and I think that's something that a lot of kids should could learn a lot from. Is that if you if you enjoy it, if you have fun with it, if you find ways in your training to make it fun and entertaining and, and enjoy for yourself, it, it, it can help you to to be even more successful in the sport because you also take some of that pressure off yourself. Right. You know, that's a good point you make because Murray in this uh, recent documentary of Murray resurfacing, you know, about his hip uh, and, uh, you know, there's one point after he got his hip uh, redone, actually, the, 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 the metal titanium put in, um, and he's once again back in the training room with his coach, and his coach puts on, he goes, okay, here we go, more training, less tennis. And Andy goes, and he goes. I have absolutely no pleasure in doing this, and and then you know, and he said something else uh, that I can't repeat, but it was something where, uh, but that's the process. It, it's part of the difficulties of even though it was, and he he said something later to his coach. He said, you know, because his coach said something like, you know, well, you made this two percent difference in your how you're able to go longer on the court without feeling sore and and he was like and I'm supposed to get pumped about that that's like really exciting and he goes I don't think so you know something like that and and the point is this is when you're focused on the process and anything positive as long as you're not going backwards anything positive is good 
and that's just and and when you have a passion for the sport and you love the sport, it helps you kind of push through those things. Absolutely, and yeah, that's a great that's a great documentary. Andy is uh, is amazing. You know, he's uh, he's a legend too, and I, I, th- I honestly think he's the he's the best British sportsman ever. Um, just yeah, he, he understands process. He, he he works incredibly hard. He's just a, he's just a high quality person and, and player. And yeah, it's tough to see him go through what he's going through. But uh, as you said, uh, he does a lot of stuff that is, is not necessarily fun, but it's part of the process, and he's willing to do it. And yeah, when he came back and won that tournament in Antwerp at the yeah. end of last year, it was really it was really it, it was impressive, and it was nice to see. You, you, you're happy for for him because you know that every Every point that he's won in that tournament, he's worked hours and hours for it in the last many months in his rehab and, and getting back on the court. And right. yeah, it's uh, yeah, he, he's a great role model, I think, for juniors too. To to just see the commitment. It sort of comes back to what I said earlier about developing junior players. You've got to be fully committed, fully invested, take responsibility, and be kind of all in in the process. And I think Andy's a great example of being all in in the process and taking full accountability for everything. And and along those lines, and I just have two more questions, but along those lines, and he always wasn't like that. Like, for example, I mean, you know, he had attitude problems, et cetera. Same thing with Novak. And these guys have matured and they've changed and they've grown now to the point where they're role models, you know. And it's just, I was actually really impressed by the documentary. I thought, wow, you know, that really shows a lot and enough that I can, hey, I'd, I'd want to, you know, uh, tell all my juniors about it hey man you got to watch this yeah no yeah. i mean and that you see that quite often with players you know because uh, it, it's interesting but when you're a young player you need a certain amount of arrogance and sort of that self-belief that self-confidence and 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 young young especially young guys it's sometimes hard to to have that balance right of, of being respectful and having humility and and you've got to have that sort of self-belief, like, I'm going to be good, I'm going to get there, I am good. And that's what gets you through sometimes. And some players are able to, to have that with, with, with a better balance of humility, like maybe a rapper or someone that just is amazing the whole time. And then others, yeah, when they're a bit younger, they're maybe, they, they come across as being quite arrogant or, you know, not as polite or nice or... And then as they mature, they realize how to balance and temper that better. Um, because you do need a lot of self-confidence and an ounce of arrogance to, to mm-hmm. be uh, one of the best uh, in the world at an in individual sport. So, right. yeah, you see that a lot. I think, I think it's, it's quite typical with, with tennis. When, when you have your players uh, struggling, they're in a slump, they're wanting to throw in the towel, they're finding it hard to be motivated, they choked or blew leads... What might you say or not say, do or not do, that people could learn from? As a coach, what would you encourage them and what maybe things you would say or not say? Like sometimes not saying something's good. So what would you, uh, what would you give advice there? Yeah, I think it comes down to the personality of the player. So you have to know, you have to know the player's personality. You have to know how they, they, they think, how they tick a little bit. And then you can, you can have a better understanding of how to approach, what buttons to push, what not to say, what needs to be said. And you understand what they're going to accept and what they're not going to accept in that moment in time. And then you, you adjust accordingly. But um, look, a lot of the time I, I find when, when players lose close matches or they're in a losing streak, you have to always find the positives 
So for me, that's the first thing is like like we talked about earlier that sometimes you you might have won 50% of the points and the other person won 50% of the points, but you just lost two key points there in the match and it, and you lost six and six um, or, or something like that. You know, seven five in the third set. And so you got to you got to look at what you did well and you got to try to build on the positive things. And then you've got to look at the process and you've got to look at, well, what do I need to do a little bit better? Maybe in those big points, I'm, I'm too tight. I need to be a little bit more loose and relaxed or I need to be a little bit more aggressive. And then you have to try to identify out of those things, what do I still need to do a little bit better to, to change this result from the close, you know, devastating loss to the victory the next time around and, and then go back to the, the practice court and, and or, or on to the next tournament that next week and, and try to do that a little bit better and um, and not not build up too much. Uh, there's, um, there's a friend of mine who has a good saying. He says, uh, if it doesn't work out the way you want in the end, it's okay because it's not the end. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a funny one, but it's a good one because it's sort of like, well, okay, I didn't win today. I played reasonably well. There was a few things I wanted to do better, but okay, short-term memory loss. Let's forget about that. Let's focus on what was good, what can be better, what, and, and just get back at it the next time and not build it up, not build it up too much. I'm, I'm a firm believer that you should never be too high when you win and too low when you lose. You've got to find that more neutral headspace. You're obviously always going to be happy when you win and a bit sad when you lose, but you, the more the more you can keep those two lines closer together that you're in a more sort of composed mindset all the time, it's, it's better for you emotionally to, on the court to play. And it's obviously a lot, lot easier to move forwards from, from losing because nobody likes losing. But in professional tennis, just uh, just on a side note here, even if you're the best player in the world, you don't win every tournament you enter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of junior players and, and parents don't understand that. That there, there was one year, um, you see the players number one, number one player in the world, they won six titles. And they'd entered, uh, they'd entered 17 or 18, 18 tournaments, and they won six. So that means 12 times. So two-thirds of the tournaments they played, they didn't win. Mm-hmm. They lost first round, semifinal, right. final. What's the difference? They, they didn't win the tournament. So people forget that, that in, in tennis, um, you, you're going to lose matches. Very few players uh, you see go through periods where they just never lose. Well, there there um, was a player. Steffi Graf and Joe Djokovic had a run and stuff, and there was a wheelchair player that, that actually achieved that. But for the most part, even the greatest players are going to lose matches sometimes. So it's 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 being able to move forwards from those losses in a positive way and and not lose the not lose the enthusiasm. I think to to keep going uh, is very important. Well, you, and you'd know the name. I, I I forgot, but there was a player who recently retired, a French player who uh, who had never won a title, and he was top twenty in the world, top thirty in the world, and was a multi multi millionaire. Yeah, I, I, there's a lot of players like that. Yeah. When you look at the title list of how many players have won titles in their career, there's a lot of very good players that were ranked twenty, thirty, forty in the world, sixty in the world because they're still very good players. They don't win any titles. Maybe maybe they have a couple of challenges or something, but not ATP Tour events. Um, and, and I think juniors and parents don't realize that. Like we said earlier, that if you win 51% of the, of the baseline points, you, that's a winning percentage. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's, again, it comes back to being comfortable competing and 
you know, there's always another, there's always another day, and, uh, and and you've got to you've got to understand that it is a process. Um, yeah. Well, well, Liam, we're coming to the end, and I really appreciate your time. I do have a question that I ask everybody, and I wanted your uh, championship characteristics. If you could give me the top five of what you would consider, and I think if people were listening, they they could probably name a few of them. You're going to name because you, you know, you mentioned them several times, but. Um, your top five characteristics of somebody that's a champion, and that could, you know, not only in tennis, uh, but just, you know, in life or just their endeavors. But, you know, we're talking tennis, but I'm sure there's a lot of overlap. So how about your top five championship characteristics? I think um, mindset is is the first one because that controls everything. Um, intensity. um most champions have a very, very high level of intensity. Um, I would say you need humility um, because you have to have respect for the opponents. You have to have respect for the game. You just uh, respect for other people. Just being a good person generally leads to more likely being a champion as well because you you have things in a better balance. Um, Work ethic. For me, I've, I've never really seen champions that don't have a really strong drive and a work ethic um, that is something special. Um, let's think. Another key one would be... Um, and that would go, get that work ethic, when you said earlier on about going beyond, doing more than the other person. You know, we, we call yeah. it last one, first one to practice, last one off the court type thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and uh, you know, in, in most cases that always works. But you know, you've got to everything's got to be in, in balance. Right. But, um, so what have I got? Three there or four? You've four, got mindset, uh, which you mentioned was uh, you know it, it controls. It has to be intensity. You know that that kind of mindset, humility, work ethic. Okay, I think it's very important that you would have um, a very uh, high level of positivity and sort of optimism because I think it's uh, it's very important to have a very optimistic and positive sort of, again, it comes back to sort of the mindset, but it, it's like a, a, another part of that mindset. Uh-huh. Um, you, you have to have a, a, an ability to view things in a positive way, even a tough loss. You've got to be able to find the positives to then be able to pick yourself back up, get back out there, work again, and go again. And uh, I think that's a really key thing in, in being a champion. Um, and then, you know, the, the fifth one, uh, it has to be said, I, I really do believe it, you do have to have talent. Um, it, it, how much talent is dependent on those other four things I mentioned, I think. But you have to have a certain amount of talent. As an athlete, as a tennis player, as a as a competitor, you do need a certain amount of talent, I think, to be um, to be a champion. And how much you do with that talent to become a champion is going to be determined by those those prior four things that I mentioned. Um, but I think it's fair to say that every, especially if you talk about a Grand Slam champion, everyone has has a good amount of talent. Obviously, some a lot more than others, but. Uh, they make up for it in other areas, so that would right. be, I would say, the five things. And 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 uh, just I wanted to chime in there. Part of that talent is their technique, 
would you say that technique is you know important because if you know like like I tell a lot of people if if you move like you know move like a beast on the court you can probably not have the greatest technique and if you have the greatest technique you may not have to move on the court because you can hit winners from anywhere but since most people don't have uh, light they're not lightning fast and have incredible strokes if you have both that makes you you know that that's a good combo so uh, having the technique uh, you know these champions all have uh, you know, not going to have severe weaknesses and they're going to have a lot of strengths. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things to, to, to think about with the technical aspect is obviously the technical aspect is, is a lot more important when you're younger, but it's also, there's, if you, if you, if we took 10 players, uh, 10 champions, we could find, commonalities in all of their techniques right. there'd be certain different quirky things or exactly. slight differences here and there so i think um you know you you could you could hit the ball like roger like uh with the same technique and everything and copy his game exactly the same way but it doesn't mean that you're going to be a champion like um, like dimitrov and <laughs> no, I didn't want to say that because Grigor is a is a great guy. No, he is. No, but I mean, there's kids out there. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it doesn't guarantee it. He, you know. he does. Yeah, he hits the ball beautifully. Yeah, it's true. Um, and he 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 did win the Masters, uh, so right. he is a champion. Oh no, I love the guy. The yeah, I love watching. But in terms of yeah, I think it's just important for juniors to understand that that having great technique doesn't mean that you're going to be able to win a lot of matches. It's gonna it's a tool in your box to help you. Um, and I think um, so. It's it's part of that process, but uh, it has to make sense to your game style, your personality, and you know, there's a lot of players out there that if you try to change their technique too much, you might make them worse. Like um, Medvedev, for example, or um, even Rafa's forehand in the beginning, the way he was swinging the racket, finishing on the same side, and you know, there's always going to be little variances in the in the technical part. So. I think uh, it has to be uh, what works for you is, is the key, I think. And, and obviously, biomechanically, it has to be reasonably sound because otherwise you're going to have physical and, or injury problems. Right, yeah. So and it, I, it's a part of the puzzle. Yeah, and I guess that's what I meant by technical because they all do vary. You know, their contact points similar, uh, you know, what they're doing. So biomechanically sound, that's, that's, uh, that's a good yeah, way to put it. Yeah, the biomechanics, the commonalities are right. there. Um, yeah. Well, you know, Absolutely. we're... We're coming to the end here, and I'd just like to maybe leave this last opportunity for you to say anything that maybe is on your mind. Uh, you have a website, or there's things that you want to leave with, uh, maybe action steps for people to go forward, or maybe a couple couple closing thoughts you might want to put in there before we uh, uh, end our, our time. Uh, yeah, um, I, I do. Uh, I did a video series. It's um, on player development, and it's um, sort of tutorial-based. Um, Online videos are all fairly short, three, four minutes, up to maybe five, six, seven minutes, a few that went longer, that are available on um, lcstennis.com. Um, so if anybody wants to, to, to hear more of my voice or, uh, or see any of those different uh, or different topics, um, go have a look. And then I think the other thing is, is obviously it's a difficult time uh, in, in the United States right now, in the world with the pandemic and and many different things that we've got going on. And I just think it's important for everybody to be, uh, try to, to be positive and to be strong and, uh, and always look, uh, look for solutions to, 
to find ways to improve. And, and, and that's something that I've always tried to do with everybody on the court. And I think it's something that we have to also remember that we, we keep that positive and, and that good mindset in, in life in general as well. That's great, uh, great advice. Well, you've been listening to the Coach Steve Clark PhD show with Liam Smith, ATP Tour coach, currently coaching Gail Monfields. Uh, be sure to like, share all this in my podcasts and website with your friends at coachsteveclarkphd.com. Again, you'll find blogs, podcasts, video analysis and discussion, uh, and more. A special thanks to Collins Company, Cord Equipment, and Aero Concrete and Asphalt uh, Specialties. I also welcome your comments and questions, and you can reach me at steve at coachsteveclarkphd.com. Um, I'm going to leave you with a final thought here. Uh, there are no shortcuts. Practice hard, practice deliberately, and play with grit. And as I end every show, uh, as the Bryan Brothers music comes up, I remind you to just let it rip. <laughs>